Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you got a Bible, I want you to come over. Sorry. I don't need that. Okay. I want you to come over to Acts 13. I want to get right at this. Acts chapter 13. Uh, one of my heroes, a uh, 19th century Methodist preacher by the name of E.M. Bounds, said this, He will use his intellect best, she will use her intellect best, who cultivates his heart most. You will use this best if you cultivate this most. Acts chapter 13, hope you have a Bible. If you don't, we have the verses. We're going to put them up here on the screen. I just want to read three from this very famous sermon the Apostle Paul preached, and they all center around David and his heart. Acts 13, beginning in verse 22. And when he, God, had removed him, King Saul, he raised up David to be their Israel's king, of whom he testified and said, this goes all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. God said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel his Savior, as he promised, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. I, uh, I love my wife without equivocation. I wish she were here. She's the better half of this team that we call the Jones team. Uh, I'm, I'm a terrible example of what I'm about to suggest, but I believe in short courtships. I, I just always have. I think we were dating about three weeks when I asked her to marry me. I had just come out of military service and I thought, let's not mess around. You're the one for me, will you marry me? She said yes, and about uh, seven months later, we were married. And so somewhere in those first couple of weeks, I made a promise to her. She was a senior in college when I came on campus out of military service, so she had a big jump on me educationally, and she was a piano major, ultimately ended up teaching piano pedagogy, still does at Lincoln Christian University. Somewhere in the midst of all that, I made this promise. Honey, I love you so much, I'm going to buy you a grand piano. Well, I didn't have any money, but I made a promise. And somewhere in the first year of our marriage, I saw in the little newspaper in the community where we lived in central Illinois that a farmer, a local farmer, was selling an old upright grand. I think I paid 300 bucks for that, went out to the farm, loaded it on my truck, drove it to the parsonage at this little church where I was serving, and apparently I didn't do everything that I needed to do, somewhere between his farm, and driving to this little bitty community where a parsonage was, that upright grand piano went off the side of the truck, and it shattered, and the only thing that we kept for years was the piano bench. 
So the next day, I drive over to Springfield, Illinois, the capital of Illinois, and I buy her a new piano, not a grand, because I can't afford that. I make, I make payments like you might make on a car for the next four years. And somewhere in the midst of it, my heart still was recognizing I was not keeping my promise. I'm going to jump way ahead. 20 years later, we're in our 45th year now of married life, 20 years after I said, will you marry me, I saw that there was an estate sale coming up and a beautiful grand piano was for sale and I brought that home, surprised her, and I kept my vow. Why? Because she has my heart. Heart gets a lot of precedence in the Bible. If you're a note taker, you may want to write this down. There are 1,014 references to heart in your Bible. 1,014. Check me on my math. 858 of those are in what we call the Old Testament, the first part of our Bible, and 156 of those are in our New Testament, the second part of our Bible. 1,014 references, and if you go to those references predominantly and you try to hear the worldview that was the worldview of both the Hebrews and those early Christians, they come to the conclusion that your heart is actually not just something that's beating inside of you and keeping you alive. Your heart is actually your inner life. Your heart is, I'm just going to cut to the chase. Your heart is, according to them, mission control center. And if this is right, everything's right. If this is all funky and messed up and dirty and nothing's right. So here's what I came to do. I packed this question in my heart, brought it all the way out here from Illinois. I, I want to ask you, is your heart God's? Does he have your heart? You'll notice in my text, right there in the middle of my text, it says in verse 22 that God said of David, He has my heart. So what I'd like to do is just bring up three heart questions. And I won't be long. I just want to put them in your heart and get you to mull over them. Here's the first heart question. Is my heart preoccupied with God's greatness? Is my heart preoccupied with God's greatness? If you look at the first part of verse 22 and you hear God speak about King Saul, I don't know if you've read 1 Samuel 13 very recently, but if you look at King Saul and how his life ends, you find a guy whose heart was not God's and somewhere in God's thought processes, he sees what nobody else can see. David's just a little guy. He's the baby of the family. And God says, that guy, that guy has my heart. And when you look at David, David's not perfect for sure. You see a lot of imperfections. But you notice about David, when God sees David, he sees a guy who celebrates God's greatness. Simply put, David has an extraordinarily high view of God. God sees a shepherd of sheep. That's what Psalm 78 says. He sees a shepherd of sheep 
And he raises that shepherd of sheep up to become the shepherd of Israel. Because that guy, that, this guy in my text, David, had a high view of God, an extraordinarily high view of God. If you can hold your place, if you've got a Bible, there were a lot of, I, I could actually go to a lot of passages of Scripture and, and let God speak about how great He is. It always makes me think about uh, Job 38, verse 4, where God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? I always think about that when I come to this passage I want to read for you. I'm over in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. I, again, I don't know the last time you looked at this passage, but it's a, the passage deals with the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. It got lost in the battle because of Saul's rebellion and the Philistines, if that means anything to you, had taken it captive and all kinds of things had gone on. Up to this point, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in Jerusalem, but by God's goodness and His faithfulness, His steadfast love, the Ark comes back and David throws a celebration. And I can't read all of this, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, David writes a song. Will, he writes a song about this occasion, and I'm going to read just a little bit of it. 1 Chronicles 16, listen to all the, the ways in which David describes the greatness of God. 1 Chronicles 16, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all of His wondrous works, glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. I'm going to jump up fast forward, verse 15. Remember His covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that He made with Abraham, His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Jump down to verse 25. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and He is to be feared above all gods. Verse 27, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Uh, verse 29, Ascribe to the Lord glory to His name. Bring an offering. Come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before... If I went through and I marked out all those attributes, all those statements of God's greatness, you would hear David talk about God being worthy, God being holy, God being strong, God being just, eternal, great, creator, majestic, good, loving, wonderful. On and on the list would go. Back to, first, back to Acts 13, verse 22 in my question. Is my heart preoccupied with God's greatness? David's was. And because David's was, God said, that's my guy. I'm going to use that guy. Now and then, I can't explain all this to you. Now and then, you get to bump into somebody you meet, a Christ follower, whose life is so saturated with the greatness of God, typically that person doesn't even know it. They don't even recognize it about themselves. I was a young preacher serving a church in Champaign, Illinois, where the University of Illinois is. This is back in the early 80s. 
And when I came to the church, the church was only about nine years old, ten years old. And I heard about a young guy, a 20-something guy who was a part of this church. His name was Dave Neff. And people kept telling me, you got to get to know Dave. He's just, he's an amazing guy. And the first time I met him, I was not impressed. He couldn't even make eye contact with me. Uh, His physical features kind of slumped over and he had a speech impediment and I had to really lean in and really be attentive to understand what he was saying. But I can't explain this to you. But I, he became a dear friend. And from time to time, I would ask him to stand before the congregation and do a communion meditation like Matt did this morning. Or I would say, Dave, uh, come and talk just in front of the offering and, and pray over the offering. And whenever he did that, it was like, a, you have earthquakes out here. It was like a, an earthquake inside his soul and a, because of the movement, the, the strata moving, a diamond would come up out of his being and he would talk about God and God somehow in David's speech impediment, God was glorified in all that. And I, I'll never forget the first time I heard him speak, the place was just quiet. That's what happens when somebody's preoccupied with God's greatness. God gets all the glory. So I got to ask you again, is your heart preoccupied with God's greatness? I didn't say this, by the way, but this, these three verses that I ripped out of Acts 13 are a part of a sermon. A sermon that was preached on a Saturday in this text, the Sabbath. Paul was at a synagogue. It was his first missionary journey. He was with his dear brother, Barnabas. He was with a young guy by the name of John Mark who later writes in your Bible, the Gospel according to Mark, and probably some other unnamed guys. And he's preaching in this place called Antioch Pisidian. Most people won't remember that. But you know where modern-day Turkey is. That's where he's preaching. And he's talking to a group of Jews who gathered there. And it's a crazy sort of sermon. It's not the kind of sermon that most of us would probably preach. He's preaching on how Jesus could be found. Actually, he's preaching on how those Jews ought to read their Old Testament. How they ought to read their Hebrew Bible. And if you go down, we're not going to do it, but if you go down through these verses... From about verse 16 all the way down to the end of this chapter, Acts 13, you're going to notice Paul says three things. He says God made a great people. That's Israel. He says that God gave a great inheritance. That's what we call the promised land. And thirdly, God brought about a great blessing. Here's the point. And that blessing ultimately and finally was found in another king in Jesus. Paul himself was preoccupied with God's greatness. God created a nation. He gave a land. And ultimately, in those two promises, he fulfilled them through the person of Jesus Christ. Is your heart preoccupied with God's greatness? Let me raise a second question, second heart question. Is my heart seeking God? regularly 
is my heart seeking God regularly? Notice in my passage, the one I read in verse 22, it says, God found in David a man after my heart who will, notice, notice that little word. If you write in your Bible, you may want to circle that little word, do. Who will do all my will. A man after my heart, a woman after my heart, who will do all my will. David, can I make it simple? David had a passion for seeking God. I, I can't read Acts 13, I can't read these three little verses about the life of David and not have my mind call up specific psalms over almost half the psalms that you have in your Bible. 150 of those psalms. 72, there's some disagreement among Bible students over this, but at least 72 of those 150 are David's. And when I read Acts 13, my mind races to some of those psalms where it clearly indicates that David had a heart that was seeking God regularly. I'll just give you two itty-bitty examples. Psalm 42, verse 1. In that passage of Scripture, David says of himself, As a deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after you, O God. You hear it, right? This, this voracious desire to seek God with all of his heart regularly. Let me give you a second example. Psalm 63, verse 1 where again, it's attributed to David. David says of God, O oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. Actually, the Hebrew Bible says, early in the morning I seek You. Now I said, notice that little word, do, in your Bible. In Acts 13, verse 22, it actually literally means to passionately act upon what God reveals about Himself. Do. If you're a Bible reader, you know that word is really a big deal over in a little letter called James. Right? James says, don't be just a hearer of the Word. Be a doer of the Word. Have a desire for God. Have a want to for God. And that's the description here in my passage in Acts 13 that David was a doer of the Word. This is dangerous. I asked my family, this was pre-COVID, about 2018, I guess. I, I felt led by the Holy Spirit to raise this question with them. So I went to my wife and I said, Honey, I, I want to be a better husband to you in my latter years than I have been in my earlier years. How do I do that? I went to my daughters, Lindsay and Chelsea, they're adults now. I went to them and I asked them that question. Kiddos, how, how can I be a better father to you? I went to my son-in-law and asked my son-in-law, Matt, he's a pastor, and I said, Matt, how can I be a better father-in-law to you? I went to my grandkids. Don't go to your grandkids unless you want them to speak honestly to you. I went to the grandkids and I said, kiddos, how can, how can they call me Pop-Pops? How can Pop-Pops be a better Pop-Pops? Now, without coercion, without getting together and cheating, trying to come up with one answer, they all said the same thing. My wife said, 
spend time with me. My daughter said, spend time with me. My son-in-law said, spend time with me. I had to re- rearrange my calendar. My grandkids said, pop-ups, we want you to spend time with us. That little word do is a time word. It's a love word. David did. He spent time with God. So is your heart, my heart, seeking God regularly. Forgive me for this because this can sound tedious, but when I was wrestling with this passage, I'd always wanted to preach it, never had the opportunity to preach it, and I thought, I'm going to preach it here. I was thinking about what I have taught students over the last 30 plus years of teaching and I was struck by how many times I've repeated to them that if they're going to be used of God they have to seek God regularly I I I created something I call the six P's Uh, I just I'm not very creative so I I'll just give them to you the first P that I told students if they're going to seek God regularly they got to prepare by, the, by that I mean you've got to get a good night's sleep. You can't get up in the morning and be alert if you've been staying up till 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. Am I confronting anybody here? You just, you've got to have a, a preparation. In my case, I can't meet with him without a good cup of coffee. I, it's holy. I need a cup of coffee. I prepare. I, I get myself cleaned up. I shave. I get dressed. Prepare. Secondly, I pray. I pray as I come before God that God, here I am. I want to encounter you. Help me to keep company with you right now. I prepare, I pray. Third, I always have pen and paper. I'm an old school guy. If you're a digital person, you've got notes on your phone or on your iPad or whatever kind of electronic device you use these days. I just believe God's in the revealing business and He loves talking to His children. And so I don't want to miss something. I write it down. Pen and paper. Fourthly, I ponder what he tells me. I ruminate on it. I chew on it. I think about it. Fifthly, I give him praise that he's talking to me. Particularly through this book. This is him speaking. I was telling my grandkids that the other day. You talk about wide-eyed. I said, when you read your Bible, God is talking to you. And sixthly, most importantly, this comes back to my word do. Number six, I intend to practice what he tells me. Prepare, pray, pen and paper, ponder, praise, practice. This isn't one of my major questions, forgive me. This is a danger of questions. Your heart ever troubled? You ever have a troubled heart? No peace? I had been asked to teach in uh, the Philippines a number of years ago, uh, Christ in Youth was doing its first cross-cultural Christ in Youth conference and they asked me if I would go and so we traveled hour upon hour upon hour and finally got to Manila. The first week I was to teach at the Manila Bible Seminary and they gave me an assignment and I was teaching away and I had befriended one of the young Filipino pastors, I think primarily because I thought he looked just like Scottie Pippen, who at that time was playing for the Chicago Bulls. And I told him, I said, man, you are a small version of Scottie Pippen. My heart just connected with him. And somewhere during that week of seminary teaching, 
He came to me one morning and he was crying when he came to me. And he said, the Lord put something on my heart and I don't know what it means, but it's for you. Now, people have told me that kind of stuff before and I, most of it's crazy. It's got nothing to do with me and nothing to do with the Lord. But this young man, I knew God had his heart and he had God's heart. He said, the Lord put something on my heart for you today. I said, well, you better tell me, what is it? I, I, had, I hadn't said anything to anybody, but I had come to the Philippines with a troubled heart with a burdened heart because I had been invited to leave a place that I love, Ozark Christian College, and go back to Lincoln, Illinois and teach there. And my greatest heartache was, how are the kids going to handle this move? And so this young Filipino pastor came to me with this word from the Lord and he said, God told me to tell you, your daughters, I'd never mentioned my daughters, your daughters are going to do well. Go. Only because that young Filipino pastor was somebody whose heart was seeking God regularly. Quickly, let me come to this, this third heart question. Number three, is my heart serving God's purpose in my generation? Verse 36, again, if you write in your Bible, you may want to circle that word served. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Can I, can I translate that for you? That, that word served is not the normal word that gets inserted in your New Testament. The normal word for served in your New Testament is the word that you do something without having any rights. Sometimes there's a second word that gets inserted in your Bible for serving, and that literally means to serve at the table. You're caring for people. Sometimes there's a third word that gets inserted into your Bible for service, and that's a word that has to do with worship. You're serving God and leading others in their worship. But none of those words are the word that's found here. The word that is found here originally painted a picture, that word served, originally painted a picture of somebody rowing in the belly of a Greek or Roman ship in complete obscurity. Nobody even knows you're down there. You're a servant. You're an under rower in God's ship. You're willing to serve unseen. Now, I know, I know, if you're really a good Bible student, you're saying yourself right now, well, what about King David? A lot of people knew King David. Yeah, but they didn't know everything that he did in private. Things that he did for Israel. If they weren't written down, we wouldn't even know them today. The preparation that he made for building the temple. All done in secret. That word service is a word that I want you to grab a hold of. It's a beautiful picture of someone who's willing to do whatever God asks them to do without fanfare, without being in the spotlight. Can I ask you just a, a side question? It's not one of my significant three questions, but I want to ask you, just pastorally, if we were having a cup of coffee, I'd ask you this. What are you doing with your life? You might say, well, I, I get up, I go to work, or I got kiddos to take care of, and then I have a part-time job over on the side, or 
I'm getting my education. I don't know what you're... What are you doing with your life? This text, look at it again. It says, David served the purpose of God in his own generation. You can be a plumber and do that. You can be a teacher and do that. You can be a nurse and do that. Physician. What strikes me about that particular word is that David's purpose matched God's purpose. Acts chapter 13, David's heart for God Every time I come to this point, it always makes me think about my own life, my own story. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. Uh, my father was a victim of what we call now post-traumatic stress disorder. He had been a prisoner of war, he never got over it. Our home was marked by abuse and by anger. I'm one of seven kids. Somewhere 1973, I'm stationed in Kansas. I, I, I'm a military policeman. I can't sleep. I'm in my bunk. I get up. There's a, a golf course, a base golf course just across from the barracks. It's about two in the morning. I go across to the 18th hole. I lay down on the green. And I do the Jacob thing. I just wrestle with God for several hours. I had no peace. I didn't know the direction of my life. I thought my life was going to move toward law enforcement. But God was doing something that I couldn't even talk about in those days. And ultimately about three plus years after that, I find myself at Bible college. And somewhere in that first year, 19... 76, I'm almost 24 years old at this point, I say to myself, I want to be a preacher. I couldn't believe it came out of my mouth. I want to be a preacher. Several years later, I'm serving this little rural community that I told you about where that piano had the, the death experience. Somewhere a few years later, I say to myself, I don't want just to be a preacher, I want to be a good preacher. A number of years go by and I realize that I got some aptitude. God has blessed me in some way. I decide I don't want to be just a good preacher. I want to be a professor. I want to teach others the things that he is teaching me. Somewhere around 2008, it all just came crashing down. It's too big a story to tell you why, but I hit absolutely rock bottom. Fit of depression went to see a good and godly counselor. She helped me think through some things that apparently I had not thought through. And it was in that moment when I realized I didn't want to just be a preacher. I didn't want to be a good preacher. I didn't want to be a great preacher. I didn't want to be a preacher and a professor. What I wanted more than anything, I wanted God to have my heart and I wanted to have His. I wanted people to say, that guy is a man after God's heart. Is that you? Is that your desire? If it is, the Bible has a name for you. The Bible has a name for a person like that. The Bible calls that person beloved. Beloved. God, stir this up in us.
do a work in us. Allow your Holy Spirit to accomplish some things that this church momentum could never possibly carry out on its own. Because here is a congregation of people who have your heart. Do what only you can do. Speak to them. Remind them that you, because of what you've done for them in Christ, they are your beloved. In the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.